What's up, guys? It's Friday, January 15th, 2021, and welcome to this week's edition of the FritzCast. How are y'all doing this week, man? It's been, um, it's been some craziness that's gone on. Um, last week, if you joined us, we were uh, interviewing John Ziegler, uh, who does a host of things all over the internet, but John was a great guest, and, and last week's episode was uh, one of the fastest growing episodes of FritzCast that was ever made ever sent and I've interviewed I was big with the libertarian crowd and interviewed candidates like Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen but John Ziegler's was peak so far um because he's so he's so non-partisan on the issues a lot of people I got a lot of messages about uh disagreements with John for sure and it, it totally cool you can have disagreements all you want but uh, doesn't take away from the fact that he came on the show. Uh, we had great discussions about uh, the Capitol, about Trump supporters, all that, all that stuff. The Capitol's Trump supporters, COVID, all that. And uh, in my striving to make a better Fritz cast this year, I have I'm going I'm going ham on guests. I'm trying to not every week have a guest, but almost every other week, at least twice a month. But if I can afford more. There's going to be more guests on FritzCast because I, I believe it drives better content. I believe conversations with people are better. Uh, I, I think it opens people to more information than just me being uh, a, a Fritz echo chamber, if you will, of, of insanity. Because if you're listening to me, you're insane, clinically, probably. But regardless... Besides that, some people are asking, you know, hey, when's when's a solo episode of Fritzcast going to come out? Like, are you going to talk about the, the what, like some people apparently get their news from me. I don't I don't know why. I don't know why you would get your news from me. But what have you? Some people are like, I need your take on the Capitol riots. I need you to break it down. I need you to tell me why I shouldn't be so afraid of the world that we're in right now. It's coming, okay? Next week's episode, I promise you, next week's episode, I don't have a guest scheduled next week, next week's episode is going to be kind of a breakdown of some of the things that have happened over this past summer up through what happened at the Capitol on the 6th and and what's happening right now um, with censorship and and social media and all that jazz. That, That episode is coming. Be patient. Because uh, that's next week's episode. Um, I have all week from I have from now until I record it next week to plot it out, figure it out, get my clips and and everything that I'm going to use for it. And that's going to be the first Fritzcast solo episode. But I rather like the guests, don't you? I rather do, and I have a great guest today. My guest today is Brad. Palumbo and Brad Palumbo again, much like uh, John Ziegler, is has his hats in uh, or has many many hats. Uh, he's dipping his hands in a lot of stuff all over the place. He's an opinion editor, uh, Foundation for Economic Education. He's a contributor to the DC Examiner and National Review. Uh, senior contributor. Uh, his views are his own. He tweets a lot, and he has a great podcast called Breaking Boundaries that's available on. Uh, Apple Podcast and Spotify, uh, which we talk a little bit about as well. Brad's had a great many guests on this program in a short three-month span, and he's having a great many more guests come on. And I'm very excited for the content that he has coming out uh, for that. But he's uh, Brad is a great uh, 
mind to tap into, uh, especially when it comes to economic policy, which we we dive into. I don't know if you knew this. I don't know if you knew this, but Joe Biden has a one point nine trillion. Might as well just call it two trillion stimulus plan, COVID relief package plan that isn't entirely COVID related. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? And also, just just to just to add icing to the cake, back in March last year, we had a two point two trillion dollar relief plan. We had a one trillion dollar one just passed in December, and now we're talking about a two point two trillion dollar one. Isn't it amazing? Money printer go burp. Anyway, Brad and I discuss a lot of topics, uh, including his background, why he is, why his focus is on economics, uh, his libertarian ideology, uh, censorship, uh, and uh, and and COVID and economic relief plans, and and why um why we're in this crazy state that we're in. So rather than dragging this out and keeping you going off the edge or whatever, you're going to get my thoughts and opinions. You're going to get Fritz Solo next week with a lot of things to unpack. But now get ready because it's time for our guest this week. Brad Palumbo, welcome to FritzCast. How are you doing, man? Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you. Yeah, appreciate having you uh, come on. Uh, can't wait to uh, dive into some of these subjects uh, that we got going on today. But uh, before I dive into anything else, can you just explain a little bit, a little bit about your background, who you are, and what you do? Sure. So I am a, an opinion journalist and economic analyst. Mm-hmm. I do writing journalism, kind of from a free market. Uh, fiscally conservative or libertarian perspective for small government, free markets, uh, that kind of stuff. And so that's what I do most of the time. I'm a columnist for the Washington Examiner, and I work at fee.org, the Foundation for Economic Education. And then I also host a podcast uh, every week, uh, Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo. It's an interview podcast. Uh, And talking to cool people, I've had a couple people like Senator Rand Paul that your audience might know. Uh, but yeah, that's mostly it. I do that. And then I tweet about my dog too. <laughs> a lot, a lot of dog tweets and, but breaking boundaries, I, just real quick, I do want to put that out there because you've had, had a great slew of guests on, I believe uh, you're getting ready to have Tulsi Gabbard on as well. Aren't you? Yeah. We're still waiting on a date, but if you're, uh, but it is going to happen sometime in the next two months. So if your listeners want to want to make sure they don't miss that subscribe on Apple podcasts or Spotify, it's breaking boundaries with Brad Palumbo. She is, I think one of my favorites for a lot of reasons. I disagree with her on a lot of things, but I think in general, she's, she's a pretty great gal. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I find a, I find a lot of libertarian minded people are, are liking Tulsi Gabbard for the, for the bigger issues that we do agree on. Not so much the things, obviously we butt heads over things like at, at the end of the day, she still has a, a very heavy progressive lean and progressive agenda. I would, I would say, but uh, she's not your, she's not your typical or stereotypical progressive uh, on the talking points or anything like that. I, I would definitely. Yeah. I think the two big differences are basically she's not a libertarian. She's a progressive, right? But on her main issue that she spends 90% of her talking time talking about, which is ending foreign wars, that's pretty libertarian, right? So that's why there's so much overlap. And then the other thing that I think makes her different from the rest of the crowd is 
she likes to talk to people who don't agree with her and she doesn't think they're deplorables and she doesn't disdain them and she doesn't call them names. So she goes on the Ben Shapiro show. I mean, not many elected Democrats would do that. So I think that's that's the thing that part of why libertarians like her is she doesn't despise us just because we're not Democrats like so many other uh, popular progressives do. Absolutely. And I, I'll get a little more into that. But going back to your journalism um, real quick, what what sparked your interest in getting into journalism, especially economic journalism? Because that's like that seems like a very specific niche to, to be going towards. Right. So I do it all, too. I mean, I write about culture. I write about politics. And then I but I do when I say economics, what I really mean is policy. Right. Whether it's like Biden's stimulus bill or minimum wage or rent control, that kind of stuff, because for me, at least, those are the things that really matter. The policies that are crushing people's livelihoods and putting them out of a job, the policies that are making it illegal to go to work or uh, taxes that are taking God knows how much of your paycheck and, and burning it all away and government waste and fraud and abuse. I have grown dissatisfied and disillusioned with kind of the media uh, focus on what did AOC tweet today? What did Trump tweet? Well, I guess rip on that one. But um, <laughs> right. But you know, like this right. constant kind of, for example, the impeachment stuff that's going on right now, like, it sounds bad to say this, I don't really care. I don't really care. I mean, it's all political partisans drama and the Capitol stuff was bad. Yeah. But like, I, I think what is much more important actually, and will affect more people's lives is not whether or not Trump is impeached or not, but whether or not Biden passes a $15 minimum wage nationwide and eliminates 4 million jobs. Is it going to be in the end of the day, much more impactful than kind of the partisan political stuff. So that's why I've been drawn in the last few years to the policy sphere. Well, yeah, and I would uh, I would suggest that this isn't talked about enough. Uh, you just mentioned Biden's plan. Biden has put out a proposal for I, I think it's one point nine trillion. You might as well just call it two trillion, though. But uh, for coronavirus relief, and that's on top of what we just had in December, which was like a, a trillion dollar bill, correct? And then the previous bill before that in last March was two point two trillion dollars, was it not? Yeah. So so basically, if, if Biden gets his wish list, and I almost feel bad calling it a COVID bill, because it's pretty misleading to call it that it's got all sorts of partisan goodies in there. It's, it's basically a Trojan horse for like the Democratic, liberal economic agenda. It's got a $15 minimum wage in there, for goodness sakes. That's what's that got to do with Coronavirus? If anything, it will make things much worse uh, in a recovery. So yeah, I, it, would, it would actually take the total spending. We spent $3 trillion total. That's really, honestly, an incomprehensible sum. But for reference, that's already three times more than we spent on, on the quote-unquote bailouts in 2008-2009. Uh, and this would actually increase it to $5 trillion total. So it, it is a huge package. It's full of dysfunctional spending. I mean, he wants to reinstitute the welfare system that paid people nearly as much or equal to their usual jobs earnings to stay on unemployment benefits. He wants to reinstitute that through September. Uh, he wants to send out stimulus checks like candy on Halloween. Uh, I don't think that money, my taxpayer money should be going to families of five that have an income of 250,000, but they would get thousands of dollars. Uh, basically, I could go on and on about this stuff. 
But this is the kind of thing that unfortunately people don't pay enough attention to. So they just hear COVID stimulus. Yeah, we need that. And they don't read the fine print. It's kind of like uh, on iTunes when you sign up and you click the, I accept the terms and conditions. Well, those terms and conditions in this case are pretty darn bad, but people just hear COVID relief and then they, they nod along and say, yeah, we need that. And then they move on to whatever the culture war topic of the day is. Now, just to qualify this, because I, I know in talking with people well, on Twitter, tweeting at people, which is probably not so good to go off of, but I, I know talking to people, they're going to be listening and they're going to say, wait a minute, he's, he's criticizing Biden's bill left and right. And it's probably just because it's Joe Biden and it's progressives and all that. You, you don't have a lot good to say about the December bill that just passed either, do you? Oh, no, I was out there saying that bill sucked, too. I did a whole explainer on how how problematic it was. The March bill I wrote about, I've been writing about the debt and how Trump and Republicans really messed up and did not address the debt in the first two years when they had unified control. So I think it's fair when progressives say, oh, now look, all of a sudden, Republicans in Congress care about the debt again. Like, they're not wrong. There are a lot of like phony deficit hawks. There are a lot of hypocrites, but I can take pride and I have the receipts to show like that is not me. I've been pretty consistent on this stuff. Uh, The same way, like so few people have been consistent on the rioting is always bad. Violence is always bad. Like I was out here when BLM was rioting saying this is bad. Stop this. This is wrong. This is hurting innocent people. And I'm out here when they attacked the Capitol and hurt a police officer and smash windows and did all this and saying that's bad. And the Democrat officials who called BLM a summer of love, right? Like they can't really do that with very much credibility. And that's why consistency on this stuff is so important. But I honestly, I feel pretty good about where I've been at through all of it. Yeah. And and consistency to me is the key anyway. Uh, This plays a lot into, um, as you mentioned, the Capitol. Um, When the Capitol unfolded on the 6th and I watched it, you know, I watched at home horrified at what I was seeing. Some people were, you know, joking and making memes and stuff and saying it's not that big a deal. But ultimately, you know, we saw a lot of violence at the Capitol. And and me, my key is, is I don't like violence. I really don't like violence. And I didn't like it at the Capitol. I didn't like it over the summertime when we saw protests and, and rioting and looting and all that stuff. But the rhetoric that comes out kind of fuels what's going on, does it not? I mean, you like, like you said, it was uh, over the summertime, we had CNN standing in front of burning buildings saying it's a fiery but mostly peaceful protest. I mean, this is, this is, this is the voices of the unheard. This is, this is legit. This is what we have to go through. Yeah, it's kind of terrible, but it's, it's kind of necessary. And then when it flips to the opposite side and we have a, a capital siege, if you will, now it's bad, but really both are bad. I mean, they are on different levels, but the rhetoric spilling in creates the environment, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think anyone who says that the other side is the one that uses the extreme rhetoric only is being dishonest with themselves because I mean you could go back and find uh, examples of Democrats saying the Republican health care bill will murder people or tax cuts will mean thousands of people will die or net neutrality repeal will destroy the internet as we know it you could go back and find Congresswoman Maxine Waters telling people to go confront Trump officials and go get up in their face and form a crowd and 
all sorts of crazy stuff. Nancy Pelosi during the whole child separation drama, which was was quite bad to be fair, but she was telling people, why aren't there uprisings throughout the country right now? So it's like these people also do a lot of this stuff. And at the same time, I mean, Trump keep encouraged his people to go to the Capitol, stole an election. And he said things like at his rallies before, get that guy, beat him up, do all that. Like, nobody here is really pure. We can we can talk about gradations and who's worse and whatever. But like, at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats both suck, especially on the matters of rhetoric, um, because they all are more interested in riling up their base and getting reelected than they are in kind of healing or unifying or taking a reasonable nuanced tone to just about anything. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And that's the sad bit is that this is coming out of our leaders. I, I don't believe that the American people are really like this, but the leadership, the, the people that set the standards really do suck at this. I mean, I mean, it's, it's when you're in a position of power like that, I would suggest that you really do have to choose your words carefully. And I think that there's just been a lot of carelessness. So, yeah, I agree with what you just said. I, I actually don't think most people are like that. If you walk down the street and talk to a random Democrat, right, if I called my mom uh, who voted for Biden, voted for Clinton, like she would not believe any of this stuff. She would not think BLM riots are OK. And conversely, you know, the average Trump supporter is not OK with what happened at the Capitol. But what's happened increasingly is that both sides cater to the 10 percent that is a most extreme of the, their base, right? Because of the way that primary elections work, uh, that in a general election, you have a lot more people voting. It's kind of a swath of the public, right? But primary elections for politicians have extremely small pools of voters. And the only people that tend to show up to those primary elections are people who are extreme and passionate and really the, the fervent zealots. And so both parties, elected officials, they kind of cater to and cower in fear of the 10 to 20% of their base that's super extreme and super energetic because AOC and her stands might primary Chuck Schumer if he doesn't say BLM rioting is great, right? Or vice versa. You might get a Trumpist challenge if you condemn the Capitol riots or don't vote to deny the election results. Uh, from the MAGA of the most MAGA of MAGA bases on the right. So it's like, unfortunately, these two increasingly extreme groups of people um, have more and more sway in our politics. Yeah. And then truly, I would truly I would think that that's a sad thing uh, to, to come to. And that brings me to uh, that brings me to where we are right now. I actually read your article that you uh, posted on uh, fee the other day. I believe it was yesterday about uh, these protesters in Portland uh, outside of a bookshop because of uh, Andy No's new book, mm -hmm. correct? And so Andy No, um, who is Andy No? I mean, just not everybody that watches my show knows who Andy No right. is. So I know he's a street I, journalist. Yeah, I don't know him too well, but he's a journalist for conservative news outlets, the New York Post, the Post Millennial. And he basically just follows around Antifa and goes to events and catalogs what they do. Uh, and so he's kind of a man on the street. He does lots of stuff on Antifa and he lives in Portland. So he's right at the center of kind of all that hard left radicalism. And he actually was assaulted by Antifa, pretty viciously beaten about a year or two ago. Uh, he had a brain injury from it. And so that was a big national story at the time. 
But anyway, he's this, he's this uh, conservative journalist. He chronicles Antifa and he has this new book out about called Unmasked that exposes Antifa. I haven't even read the book, but here's how why it caught my attention. Mobs descended on this Portland bookstore demanding that they remove it from the catalog and stop selling it, right? These are the supposed anti-fascists who are embracing the book burning of the Nazis, right? And, and that's what was so galling to me that it, it's so alarming when people think that somehow they're the progressives when they're the ones trying to ban books. Yeah, yeah. And this is, uh, this, this not only plays into what was going on there. I mean, obviously... It, it's funny. It's always it's always Portland for some reason. Um, it's like that's where the it's like that's where the ten percent of the most extreme progressive people live. I don't know. Yeah. But um, uh, we have that level or that example of censorship. They want this book not sold in the bookstore. The bookstores, you know, they they didn't put it on their physical shelves, from what I understand. It's still on their online catalog, and they say they have come out and said that we don't like we sell books from left to right and there's ones that we agree with and love there's ones that we loathe and we don't like at all but this is what we're supposed to do as a bookstore we provide the book if you want to buy it you buy it if you don't don't buy it leave it on the shelf but isn't it crazy that that's controversial now that is i mean it is controversial it, it this this it, it, it and it's not just with this book either um there was something like two years ago or so where I remember a Twitter campaign. I don't remember some of the specific details, but it was over plates. It was over plates and it said something about, you know, stuff yourself until you, you know, until your belt bursts or something. And somebody was like, well, this is fat shaming. And they went on a Twitter campaign and the company removed selling the plates, even though like, what is that? What is there to be angered about? Like, if you don't like the plates, don't buy the plates. It didn't say go out and kill somebody on the plates. I could understand it maybe, if it was that, but something as trivial as, as that, where I saw it, I got offended. I'm going to start an outrage mob and get it banned. That's scary territory. <laughs> it is because fundamentally it's always been left, right, kind of an American principle and idea that, you know, I, I might hate what you have to say, but I'll die for your right to say it. Right. The, um, this idea that we seek to debate ideas rather than squash them, this really was for a long time fundamental to who we are. But now you have this faction on the left that wants to stamp out dissent. These are the same people who sometimes it's through the government, sometimes it's not. They're encouraging boycotts and corporations to erase uh, people from the internet. And it's just, it's bizarre because I think that there's this conceit when you are when your response to say a prominent conservative like Andy No or Ben Shapiro or someone like this is we need to get him banned from Twitter or we need to get his book banned from our stores. What you're essentially admitting is that you can't argue against him. You know that if he is allowed to speak and his his arguments are allowed to flow, you will lose. There's something pretty galling in that. Like you actually think your own ideas are too weak. Basically, you have to convince people. This is what they did in Fahrenheit 451, the, the famous book everyone read in high school, right, where they had firemen who went around burning books. They wanted to control what people could think. So what they did is they took away the options. They burned all the books so they could control the information that people were able to receive. And then by, by in therefore, they could control what people were able to think. 
And in doing so, any kind of totalitarian movement, left or right, that seeks to do that is essentially admitting that they can't win an argument. They know their ideas cannot withstand challenge in, the, in the, an open debate. Uh, and this is the same kind of thing you see when, like, conservatives say it should be illegal to ban to burn the American flag, right? Well, I I certainly would never ban the American flag myself. I love America, but it's people's speech right to do so if they want. Uh, and what you're saying, if you have to ban it, you're saying that you are incapable of arguing for patriotism, that your patriotism is so empty that it must be mandated on others through the law. And to me, that's a stunning indictment of your own case. Yeah, no, 100% it is. And then there is also just the argument of take Trump, for example, Trump banned off of Twitter. Twitter comes out with their release saying why they did that. They've gone on and barred several other people, several other prominent people um, on Trump's side from the platform entirely. Uh, Parler lost its servers from, from Amazon and got pulled entirely. And there's something to be said about, I understand the reaction to it because of what transpired, but at the same token, when you go on an active campaign like this, uh, I have fears as a person like, I don't want to see Trump's tweets. I don't look at Trump's tweets. Simple as that. I think Twitter has great self-policing tools of controlling what content you do see and don't see. But when you actively go on a campaign to remove it, I feel like you're like you're you're toying with fate and playing with fire even more because now you have dumped fuel on a fire that kind of emboldens people to the conspiracy almost like See, they are out to get us. They are silencing us. They are removing us. And it keeps that rhetoric rolling. It, it, it dumps more fuel onto it, and that fire gets even bigger, and it's even harder to extinguish now. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is kind of a, a tough issue for libertarians because two things can be true at once. Social media companies are private companies. They are not the government. So they're not legally bound by the First Amendment. Uh, and they shouldn't be either. But we can, we can separate the question of the law from what these companies ought to be doing. And I really strongly find what they're doing morally reprehensible and objectionable in massive platforming of the president of the United States and conservatives writ large. Here's the thing. If you truly believe that what Trump said on Twitter constituted incitement to violence, which it certainly doesn't under the legal standard of what that means, but you could say that it does under the kind of every day. Delete those tweets. Censor those tweets. But the perma ban of the mainstream political figure for 75 million Americans says, sends a signal to the entire country that we think your beliefs are beyond the pale of acceptable opinion. We hate you. We think that you are so vile that you should not even be heard. And I think that that will only exacerbate every problem we have in this country because our problems right now are driven by division. They're driven by hyperpartisanship and polarization. And what's going to happen now that Trump is banned? His loyal diehard base of 10 or 20 million people or whatever it may be is going to follow him to the edges of the internet, to Newsmax TV or to um, some, to Gab, I don't really know, right? Some new thing that will crop up and they will be in this tiny far right echo chamber where they'll just get they won't have any exposure to fact checks 
like at least on Twitter, right? If Trump tweets something in the replies, there's thousands of people disagreeing, citing other sources, right? So anyone who looks at a Trump tweet is also going to see the other side, right? These people will follow Trump to this silo and it will be just a pure unadulterated echo chamber of MAGA and far right uh, kind of festering. And that's gonna lead to, there's this law of group polarization if you're in a group that is an echo chamber, you just keep getting more extreme and more extreme and more extreme. Now, we literally want the opposite of that to happen. The Capitol attack showed us that there is a small slice of Trump supporters, right? It's not most Trump supporters, but a small slice that has really gone far too far. They've become fringe. They've become really radicalized. They believe in QAnon conspiracies, this kind of stuff. We need those people to come back to the center or to kind of reconnect with the greater society. We don't, and this, I, I really do believe that this will have the opposite effect of siloing these people off. will only make a, another capital attack or something like it. Um, like you said, it will only play into the narrative. This is like confirmation bias for QAnon. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just, it's scary all around to, to try to figure out where to move on from here now you and i we're libertarians or libertarian leaning at least anyway i know i believe i i heard in one of the interviews that you uh you did with one of my pals that uh, you're actually a registered libertarian uh voter correct yeah i haven't really uh yeah so i only when i first registered to vote i did register as a libertarian and i voted for gary johnson uh mm -hmm. but then i honestly just haven't updated it I don't yep. know if I would have chosen to stay as a libertarian. I don't think I would have registered as a Republican. I might have changed to independent, but I, uh, yeah, I, I am still technically a registered Libertarian Party voter. Right. But uh, well, at least you're into libertarian and conservative philosophy, though. Oh, for sure. Uh, just yeah. the partisan politics of all of it, really, I find distasteful. And, and I really, I hate I, I hate both mainstream political parties. I think they're so dysfunctional and broken. Uh, and the LP, I have a lot of concerns about, frankly. I hope it's getting better. There's some people coming to power who are much more promising than past ones. Um, but I've never found it to be a very attractive alternative, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm definitely very libertarian or classically conservative in the, in the philosophical sense. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I agree with that. There's there's problems with the uh, with the LP, and I've interviewed uh, many a many a person on on that. Um, that's actually been my focus over the past year uh, or so because I I feel like opportunities have been there, and I feel like there's not uh, the proper, I guess, coordination and the proper people in power and the proper focus uh, moving it forward. Yeah, I really think that a successful libertarian party could have done so much better. It's kind of nuts to me that they couldn't get five or 10% of the vote minimum against such two horrible candidates. Trump and Biden are really bad candidates, deeply flawed, deeply disliked by broad swaths of the American public. The libertarian message on a ton of issues right? Whether it's criminal justice reform or drug decriminalization or gay marriage or um, literally cutting taxes, like it's a pop bringing the troops home. These are popular messages that pull very highly with broad swaths of the public, including both parties, voters. So it's like if you have weak opposition you and then you have ideas that are actually popular, but you're getting 
basically zero votes or like 1%, right? There's two things going on there. One, I certainly acknowledge that in many ways the system's rigged against third parties. So I'm not saying it's all their fault, right? There's a lot of uphill climbs, but two, you got to take some accountability. Clearly you're doing something wrong as a party when you have such a promising avenue before you and you're getting such meager results time and time again. Uh, absolutely. And that, that makes me wonder going forward. I think we're, I think we're in for some really trying uh, months ahead and pro- probably years to, to be more accurate about it. Uh, just because we we're in such a divided and divisive state and uh, too many people, the rhetoric doesn't uh, isn't swinging towards a, a more center-minded uh, uh, style of thinking. Uh, how do you think that we can broaden our appeal to those people and start kind of drowning out the more prominent voices that are, that are fueling this thing, fueling the divide, fueling, you know, the partisan play, how can we dive in and get people more away from that and strengthening the middle ground? So I actually think one of the problems is just name recognition and money So for example, Donald Trump, why did he win the Republican nomination and have such a head start? It's because the whole country already knew who Donald Trump was. People in politics that I talk to, they really can't state enough how important name recognition is, name ID. So I think we should, the LP should never run a presidential candidate again, who does not have existing levels of high name ID. Someone like Joe Jorgensen, you know what, she seems like a great lady. No one knew who she was before she ran for president. Even someone like Justin Amash, who has significantly high name recognition, still a lot of people don't know who he is, but he would at least have a huge head start compared to a total no-name candidate, right? But if you had somebody like Rand Paul, who most of the country probably knows who he is, or if you had somebody that was like a celebrity, right? If you got, I, I don't know, Matthew McConaughey or Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or I'm just pulling names out of my head, but somebody who has a bunch of money to self-fund a campaign and then a bunch of name recognition because at the beginning, the hardest part is getting noticed. I really think that's the biggest hurdle because if the Libertarian Party message and a more mainstream version of it could get out there, I think it would do really well. But the system is closed off to it. The media is largely closed off to it. And so you need somebody who can break that. Like if Trump had started out as a no-name candidate, the gatekeepers would have never let him in. But because he could self-fund his primary campaign in 2016, because he started with 90% name ID, no one could stop him. And I think that's what the LP needs in terms of national elections. Hopefully they can get something together and really start moving to make an impact. Hopefully that is what happens. Uh, Brad, I've had you for a little over a half hour now. Uh, Let's get ready to wrap this up. Where can people find you and your work online? The easiest way is check out my Twitter. It's Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. Also made an Instagram recently for political stuff. That's just Brad Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. But most importantly, definitely check out the podcast. I think if they like your show, and I, I know I do, uh, they'll like mine too. It's Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right. Well, Brad, thank you for your time. Thanks. All right, guys. So that was Brad Palumbo on FritzCast. Be sure to check out Breaking Boundaries and follow him 
at Brad underscore Palumbo on Twitter, uh, which is going to be tagged. So if you came on Twitter, it, it's it's tagged. It's right there. Just just click his name. <laughs> I'll take you to his page. Oh man, thanks thanks for listening though, guys. And uh, next week, remember the solo episode, solo twenty twenty one debut episode of Fritzcast, where you're just gonna get me. Maybe you get Bernie Sanders because um, he's gonna be uh, Joe Biden's labor management committee, or no, not labor management. Um, I'm gonna be the guy in charge of the purse strings from now on. So it's gonna be it's gonna be lo- everybody thought Bernie Sanders was gonna be gone. <laughs> Not so, no, 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 Fritz, not so. Um, I'm going to be here for quite a long time. So, so that's going to be next week's episode. But guys, do me a favor. If you liked this, uh, give it a like. If you're on YouTube, just click the like button, all right? If you want to leave a comment, leave a comment. It's great. Great boost for the podcast. If you have Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, whatever, whatever your podcast catcher is, go onto the page. Give us a give us a rating, a rating, a review, uh, five stars if you can if you can handle it. I mean, we're they're about to pass another sp- stimulus package. I'm pretty sure giving out stars for podcasts is in there, and if it's not, then there's some seriously fucked up shit going on in this world. <laughs> but do that for me. I love you guys, and I'll see you guys next week.